Okay, I'll read the first 10 verses of Luke 17. These are the wonderful words of our Lord, Jesus speaking. Then said he unto his disciples, It is impossible that, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It is better for him that a millstone be hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostle said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he come from the field, Go sit down and eat to meat, and will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird myself, and, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise, when you have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. So here we have a master and a slave. The story is very simple. The, 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 uh, the servant goes out in the field and tend, tends to the animals all day long and then comes in and uh, serves his master, his supper, with no thanks, and then afterwards he eats. Now, how, how many of you have a memory of this parable? Did you, are you remembering it was in the Bible? That, have you heard this parable before? I'm sure some of you have. Uh, how many of you don't quite like this parable <laughs> of the master not, not giving his servant rest until he had fed him his supper and not giving him thanks? Well, it does... There's something a bit troubling about that. Well, this story hinges on two questions. Will the master invite the slave to sit down and eat? Will the master thank the slave for all his work? And it seems to us that the answer should be yes, but the answer is no. So the hardworking slave, we would think, deserves a break and the master should be mannerly enough to express his appreciation. But the answer is no. No, rela no relaxation and no thanks. <laughs> well, we'll come back to the parable. Let's, uh, let's first consider who Jesus is uh, speaking to in, in this, uh, this account. Uh, the disciples were his audience, and they were eager and sincere learners of Jesus. 
wanted to learn. And it seems like the, the Pharisees were there also. They had been tracking him and hounding him. And uh, now the Pharisees were worldly and selfish and ambitious and, and covetous and proud. And uh, so it may be that in, in verse 1, Jesus is, is speaking to the Pharisees, but he, has, he speaks to the disciples as well. Woe to those who offend and cause others to stumble and sin. And Jesus is saying here that in this, in this fallen world, in this world of sin, that temptations and hindrances are going to come. That's just the way it is. But that doesn't make, make the offender blameless. He says, woe to the one who brings offense or, or, or causes it, hinders someone in their faith. Woe to the person that hinders someone in their faith. Jesus says hinders the little ones. And that could be new believers or seekers, young in faith, but it may, it may mean uh, woe to anyone who offends any believer. It says Jesus gives a stern warning about a hindering someone in their faith. The one who offends and hinders others very guilty. Now the Pharisees were concerned about their reputation, their popularity, and their wealth, and their following. And in their selfishness, they were hindering people from really believing on Jesus and following him. Woe, Jesus said, woe to those who cause others to sin. It would be better to die a horrible death by drowning than to cause others to sin or stumble. He doesn't say exactly what the woe will be, but you get the sense that Jesus is, is giving us, would give us stern judgment. Death would be better than harming another person spiritually. And then Jesus says to his disciples, take heed. Watch yourselves to make sure that you don't cause others to stumble and sin. Uh, would it be a danger that the disciples would do that? Would it, is, it, is, is there a danger that we would cause others to, uh, we would hinder others in their faith? How could we do that? Well, the Pharisees did it by living in luxury, living soft and lazy, uh, being selfish, being judgmental and harsh, being disagreeable and divisive, they discouraged people in their faith. And Jesus is warned, giving, uh, telling us to watch ourselves <laughs> that we don't do what the Pharisees did. Someday, someday the disciples would be leaders. Uh, Pharisees were were religious leaders, someday the disciples would be, be leaders in the Christian church. Jesus is telling them to take heed, be careful that you don't cause others to stumble. And then te Jesus teaches us to rebuke the, the person who sins. Not only are we to be watchful that we don't sin and that we don't cause offense to others, we are to oppose sin. 
We're not to be indifferent to sin in ourselves or in others. What should we do if we feel that we have been wronged by another? Here Jesus said a brother. What, what should we do if we feel hurt or injured? We can, quick, we can quickly feel uh, bitter and angry and resentful and revengeful, but this is not the step that Jesus wants us to take. Maybe the first thing we should do is ask, could this be a misunderstanding? If I misunderstand or assume something that my brother uh, said or did was to, to hurt me, did he really intend to harm me? And how would I find out if he did? Well, we should go to him at once and ask. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 18, go and tell your brother his fault between yourself and him alone. Rather, rather than dwelling on this offense, whatever it was, and magnifying it, rather than talking about it, and spreading it around, and discoloring it, and misrepresenting it, Jesus teaches us to go to our brother and talk about it. Rather than, rather than going indignant and angry and resentful, we should go friendly and open and honest and sincere and fair without guile. And I believe that if we go that way, that very likely our brother will either clear up the misunderstanding or he will apologize and seek, seek forgiveness. And when he repents, Jesus teaches us that we should forgive, immediately forgive. And if he sins against us again and repents, we should forgive again. And then if he sins again, is this all in one day? Yes, in a day. Uh, and repents, we should forgive again. And if he, if, if he sins against the, us the fourth time we sh and repents, we should forgive him once again. And the fifth time, and the sixth time, and the seventh time, if he sins and then comes back in repentance, we should forgive him one more time. Jesus here is teaching unlimited forgiveness. No grudge, no retaliation, no revenge. Forgive again and again and again. Jesus said another time to Peter that he should forgive 70 times seven. Unlimited forgiveness. Too often we might say that I'll forgive you, but <laughs> better not do it again. Or I'll forgive, but I certainly won't let this happen again. I'll not be in position to be hurt this way another time. I'll, I'll be out of this relationship. Well, real forgiveness is not only surrendering the longing to get even or get revenge, it is doing the other person uh, active good, having an attitude of goodwill and prayer for God uh, to move in the person's life to bring good, but in, in an active way to to give good to that person. Jesus is teaching that we're to be compassionate and forgiving, but not weak and indifferent. He asks us to rebuke um, those that sin and forgive. Now the disciples, it seems, were overwhelmed with all this good teaching 
that Jesus was giving, the teaching of the great woe that, to those who cause others to stumble, and of the need to rebuke and oppose those who sin, and the need to forgive with, without reservation, without limitation, those who offend. And they cry out, Lord, increase our faith. We are sinners and we offend others. We are, we are afraid of confrontation and we struggle with forgiveness. Lord, increase our faith. They realize that faith in Jesus Christ makes a difference in how you're able to do the impossible, that you are able to do the impossible, that of forgiveness and goodwill and responsibility and for our brother and their sin and they cried out to Jesus for help to increase their faith. Help us to do the impossible. Help us to do the supernatural. Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus says to them and to us, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, even if you have only a small faith in a great God, you can do the impossible. What is genuine faith? It's believing God, it's surrendering to his will, and it's stepping out in obedience to his will by the grace of God in the situations of life. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to the, the sycamine tree, um, maybe there was a tree right there in, in, in sight of, Je of Jesus, you could say to that tree, be rooted up and thrown into the sea and it would obey you, obey you. I read this may have been the mulberry tree, which is deeply rooted and just about impossible to uproot. What did Jesus mean? Well, I don't think he meant we should occupy ourselves with transplanting trees out into the sea. <laughs> but he was talking about doing that which is difficult and impossible and right what is difficult and impossible and right. He's saying nothing is impossible with faith in a great God. Having faith, because having faith in Jesus Christ, he will give us grace and help us to do the impossible. Even if it's unreasonable, even if it's unlikely, even if it's, it's improbable, God helps us to do the impossible. Jesus will enable us not to be an offense to others, not to cause others, not to hinder others in their faith. He will enable us not to be indifferent about other people's sin, but to love them and rebuke them. And he will enable us to truly and completely forgive over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then Jesus teaches, when we have done all these hard things, these difficult things, these impossible things, there is no need to be proud and there's no need to relax. There's no time to relax, but we're to continue to do our duty because Jesus is our master and we are his slave. And now we return to the, to the parable. The servant had worked all day. Will the master now serve him? Will he receive thanks? The answer is no. 
He just must continue to do his duty for the master. What is this parable is saying to what is this parable saying to us here today? I read that in the mid 19th century, around the time of the Civil War, that the American slave owners and the clergymen and the government officials use this parable to defend slavery. Is that what this parable means? Of course not. Just in, in chapter 16, Jesus said that he, he read from Isaiah saying that his mission was to preach the good news to the poor and proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to release the oppressed. Is the point of this parable to show that God does not appreciate our efforts, efforts to serve him and that he will not serve and reward us? No. Uh, notice verse 37 of chapter 12 in this in Gospel of Luke. Here's what Jesus said in his, his teaching of his, about his return. He said, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. So there the master uh, uh, serves the servants because they were watching, watching for him and been, been about his business all the while he was gone. So it's not saying that God will not reward us or appreciate us. There is, there is a day when we will rest from our labors and we'll, we'll receive our reward and hear that, the, the, that word, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into thou into the joy of thy Lord. God is a benevolent master. This, this parable teaches us this, that God is our master and we are his slaves. Other parables, um, well, there's other, there's other teaching parables and teaching of the New Testament that teach us that God is our heavenly father and we are his children. God is our creator. We are his, we are his creatures. Jesus is our friend. He is our elder brother. He is our sympathizer. He is our helper. Uh, but this parable teaches that Jesus is our master. And maybe this is kind of like a, a, a four-part uh, choral group. We could say the soprano could be God our creator, and the altos would be God our, our father, Ab, and we call him Abba Father. And the, Tenors could be Jesus, our friend and good shepherd. And the bassist could sing about God, uh, sing would be God, our master. And if you put all of this in a, uh, if you sing this in four-part harmony, you'd have a beautiful uh, sound. God is all these things. He's judge and he's redeemer and he's savior and he's deliverer, deliverer and he's sympathizer and he's encourager, and he's friend, and he is master. This parable depicts God as our master, and you and I as slaves, needing to do or continue to do our duty, obeying our Lord's commands, 
Jesus used the slave terminology a lot. I read that maybe about 60% of his parables were about a slave's uh, master relationship. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. No slave can serve two masters. If I, your master and Lord, wash your feet, you should do likewise. No slave is greater than his master. You call me master and Lord. Paul's favorite word for Jesus is master, and he often called himself a slave. Now, why do we need to remember this master-slave relationship? Why do we need this fixed into our mind that God is renewing? I believe it's because of our fallenness. In our, in our fallenness, we seem to be afflicted with a condition called narcissism. That's the word I wrote on the board. Uh, Jeremy is my, uh, my son Jeremy is my walking dictionary. I think he says it can also be, be uh, narcissism, a shorter version. But I found this word kind of describes who we are, <laughs> who I am. Uh, narcissism means self-love, an excessive interest in one's appearance, comfort, importance, and abilities. It's good for us to remember that God is our master and we are his slave, his servants. God is creator and we are his creatures. God is Lord of the universe and we are not. God is perfect and we are not. True, he is our friend, our companion, our father, our sympathizer, but we, we are nowhere close to being his equal. God is our master. This parable teaches us at least three things, that we must surrender to his control, to the control of our master. We must do our duty, and we must serve only one master. First, let's consider we must surrender to God's control. Obedience and submission and dependence are central to this parable's teaching about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In our country, we get a steady diet of uh, talk about rights and entitlements. And we can almost unwittingly think and expect that God is just going to give us what we want and what we think we deserve, feel we deserve. The truth is that God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. We don't deserve anything from God. We've not earned anything from God. We owe him everything. Now God, God is a God of love, and he does love us. He, because of his holy character, he loves us, but we don't merit his love. God's commands are all right. They're right. And we must surrender to him. God has everything in his control, and we can, we can trust him and depend on him and all of the ordained circumstances of our life, his ordained circumstances of our life. Thankfully, thankfully, God, our Heavenly Father, is not like the human master in this parable, who seemed to be selfish. Our master is gentle and humble in heart, and he gives rest for the soul, and his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he pulls the load with us. 
because our master is so powerful, we can rest in his strength. Because he is so good, we can trust in his care for us. Because his commands are so right, we can know that if we obey them, everything is going to be all right and turn out all right in the end. Our bondage to this good master is really our great freedom. We are slaves. He is our master. But what a good situation we're in if we're a servant of Jesus Christ. Our surrender to our master is really a liberation for us. I read this story. Oh, I meant to give uh, recognition. One of us, uh, I got the idea for this sermon from a magazine article in, in Christianity Today a month or two back. I read these, this story there. In 1967, at a major missions conference sponsored by InterVarsity Fellowship, Tom Little and his girlfriend, Libby, surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ and committed to being missionaries. They married and then served in Afghanistan for over 30 years. In 2010, Tom and the medical team he was leading were ambushed and killed. His wife, Libby, was quoted to say, although Tom was killed in 2010, he had already surrendered his life to God's good purpose way back in 1967. For over 40 years, Tom had submitted himself to his master and then went on to his reward. God was his master. God is our master, which means we must surrender to him at all costs. Another thing Jesus is teaching us in this neglected parable is that God is our master and we, we must do our duty. We must see ourselves as servants. We must obey his commands. We tend to count the cost. Jesus did say we should count the cost if we're willing to really give up to him. And we don't, maybe sometimes don't like to do things that are inconvenient. We're concerned about risk. But uh, Jesus wants to, us to obey him, do our duty for him, no matter the cost, no matter the risk, no matter the inconvenience. Just do what he commands us to do. And everything is going to turn out all right if we do. Even if it's difficult, even if it's impossible, he'll increase our faith so we're able to. Here's another story. Uh, this happened in the 1940s when the Nazis occupied France. I was reading in a book about the Holocaust. Uh, I don't know if I remembered that when the Nazis overtook these countries, they went about in a systematic way to do away with the Jews in the countries they conquered. But this happened in a small Protestant village in France, Le, Le Chambon. And they, they accepted, there were Christian people there, and they accepted a dangerous duty over 3,000 farmers and craftsmen from the village risked their lives to help 5,000 Jewish children to escape into nearby Switzerland. Later they, were, later they were asked why they jeopardized their lives to save strangers. And their answer was simple. They said, we could not stand idle and watch the innocent die. 
It was our God-given duty to resist evil and to do good. They were doing their duty. And we must do our duty. And we must be humble about it. I believe Jesus is, 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 is uh, teaching in this parable that we're not to expect thanks, not to expect recognition, not to go, be going after praise. Not, that's not the motivation for doing good for God. We're unprofitable servants. We're just doing our duty. <laughs> We're unworthy servants. A Jewish rabbi wrote, If thou hast wrought much in the law, claim not merit for, them, for thyself, for to this end wast thou created. And I believe in our Christian setting we could say, Have you obeyed many of Christ's good commands? Claim no merit for yourself. That's why you've been recreated. You're just doing your duty. Anything that we do that's truly good is by the grace of God. We can claim no merit for, or credit for ourselves. We're doing our duty. We're unworthy servants. So we shouldn't list our accomplishments and feel like we've done great things or deserve recognition or that, or that we've done God a great favor. We're only doing our duty. A third lesson from this neglected parable is that we serve only one master. How liberating to serve this one master. Serving Christ, we no longer serve Satan, who is a hard master, a slave driver. Serving Christ, we no longer serve our old sinful desires. Serving Christ, we're freed from meeting, meeting other people's expectations. For sure, if Christ is our master, we'll, we'll do what's best for other people. But Christ being our master, we, we no longer are praise seekers and people pleasers. I know I've been a people pleaser. I, I like pleasing people. I like that they're pleased with me too. I like to make them happy. But really that's not, not the motivation for why we live. Should, shouldn't be. That's not the way to live. Rather, what does God want me to do? How can I please my Lord? And then let the chips fall where they may. But we will do best for other people if, we, um, if, we're, if God is our master. I find it liberty liberating not to be a people pleaser. I read about a Ken Elzingo. I wonder if Greg knows this man. He, he's a professor. I think he's still a professor at the University of Virginia. As a fairly young Christian, he joined the faculty at age 26. A fellow faculty member knew he, knew he, was, a, knew he was a Christian and warned him, warned him not to speak much of his faith because it would hinder his career. One day, uh, Ken real, noticed a flyer posted in a prominent place on campus with his picture on it, and it was, it, re, it was advertising that he would speak at a campus ministry event. Ken was worried, and he thought about this. Uh, what would his colleagues think of them, him? Would this harm his chances of having good tenure? So he had a battle in his soul that night, and he returned to campus and took down the flyer and took it home. And then after hours of soul searching in the morning, he went and put it back up again in the same place. 
he, he had concluded that his life was not about career ambitions, that it was not about um, what other people thought of him, but it was about faithful discipleship. And being quiet about his faith was not obeying his master. Pleasing one master is liberating. Why? Because pleasing this one master, we're less anxious and we're less sensitive to criticism and we're more courageous to do the right thing and we're more secure. We no, no, no longer need to compete for the honor of men and to seek because we just seek to please one master and that's Jesus Christ. Let's sum up Jesus' teaching. Jesus calls us not to be an offense, not to, not to cause others, hinder others in their faith, to oppose and rebuke those that sin, not, not, not being judgmental or revengeful, revengeful, indignant, but in a loving way to, to rebuke them and to forgive completely without limitation. And, and we hear these high callings and high commands from God. We can cry out, and, oh Lord, increase our faith. And faith, just a tiny faith, a tiny genuine faith in a great God helps us to do the difficult, impossible, supernatural things. God is our master. We are his slave. We must surrender to his control. We must do our duty. We are unworthy servants, deserving no honor and no personal praise. We serve one master. Yes, God is our friend. Jesus is our elder brother and our sympathizer, but he is our master. He is our master. And so it's not okay. It's not okay to, to hinder others in their faith. And it's not okay to be unforgiving. And it's, it's not okay to be indifferent about sin. But God helping us in our faith, we can do these hard things. When we give up, when we surrender to our master, we're liberated from Satan's control and from our selfish desires. When we give up our rights and entitlements, we're liberated to do our duty and please our master. When we serve this one good master, we're liberated from being people-pleasing praise seekers. We sang about the wonderful words of wonderful words of our Lord. We serve a wonderful good master. We are unworthy servants, just doing our duty with joy. God bless you. Let's have a song. <laughs>